and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we delve into our July graphic novel of the month. That was John Byrne Month, and the graphic novel is Danger Unlimited, originally published by Dark Horse Comics in 1994. We read the IDW trade paperback graphic novel from 2009 that combined Danger Unlimited with Babe. We read Danger Unlimited, which took up only about 90 of the 241 pages, and the rest was Babe and some single-issue covers from both series. The story and art is by John Byrne, and colors by Matt Webb, and yes, we have our Byrne victim amongst the kids. A big fan of John Byrne's work, JJ, is here to review this with me. JJ, how are you? I am doing well. The bandages are in place, and I'm healing quite nicely. Thank you very much. Now, I've been a uh, I've been a fan of John Burns from his earliest works at Marvel, which we've talked about before. Iron Fist, some fantastic, fantastic early work before he moved on to X Men, staked his claim to fame, and continued to rise up the ladder of stardom to the to the summits of you know comic creatorship yeah jj and i have to admit i got a little singed when we were burning out july myself as i was discovering some of these incredible works and reviewing them and i have to give you full credit here as far as the recommendation that we read Danger Unlimited as this was an incredible journey we took with a real tease <laughs> of a series, frankly. And we'll delve into what we mean by that very shortly. But as we always do, let's open up with a little Kirby Colonel, a little Colonel of Knowledge about our namesake, Jack. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. And JJ, we are really lucky in the fact that we actually have a relationship that existed between Jack Kirby and John Byrne to the point where you have one having worked with the other's original creations and truly taking them to a whole new level. Frankly, Marvel as we know it today until Jack came along after the Atlas implosion and co-created the Marvel Universe with Stan Lee. When he did that, we had... The first family of Marvel, Fantastic Four. We had the X-Men come out here. Well, those are two massive series, titles, that our author here, an artist, John Byrne, would inhabit and really make a name for himself over at Marvel doing this. He was inspired by Jack to the point where when he was early in his career, before his success, John penciled his admiring double-page spread celebrating Jack Kirby's comic consciousness in Foom 11 from 1975. So this truly was a fan then getting the opportunity to be the custodian of these landmark, foundational, Silver Age characters. Well, and not only was he, not only was he paying homage to 
the the king himself in this beautiful two-page spread. He was doing it in the style of Kirby. He also did the cover, which had a caricature of Jack in a ever-heroic pose, leaping out of the page at you. And, and clearly, there was a great deal of respect and admiration from the young artist to the seasoned professional here. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. He was a student of Kirby. He had picked up on Jack's signature nine-panel action shots, implemented them in Iron Fist, which you and I just digested all of that with a big grin on our face when we were reviewing Iron Fist. That was just some incredible work. He also paid homage to Jack in X-Men 137, 1980, by having the Watcher give the same treatment to Wolverine as he did to Red Ghost in The Fantastic Four, 13 in 1963. Matter of fact, Byrne was known for these homage pieces throughout his various runs and speaks to the reverence, frankly, that John had for Jack, with Jack being that trailblazer and really leading the way in the new realm or style that comic books would take on in the Silver Age and then mature even more into the Bronze Age. I think we really need to emphasize the fact that John Byrne is a historian in this fact. So when he goes to work on comics or a story or a character, he looks at everything that's come before and he pays homage to it, definitely, but he respects it and incorporates it and uses things that have been established and brings it hopefully to a new generation, to a new audience. When he does this, when he's doing these call-outs, he's hitting those high notes that Kirby hit and bringing a, a fresh presentation to it to new readers, really, really going to the crux and the, the heart of what makes these characters so popular. I think one of my favorite ones is he pays tribute to Jack in an issue, I think it's of, of Fantastic Four, when Doom goes on a tirade because one of his flunkies makes reference to the Fantastic Four as Doom's rivals, and he goes flying off the handle. Doom has no rivals. And it just so hits that this is what Dr. Doom is, and it, he's being true to the character that was established so long ago. JJ, you bring up a really important point there, because by doing this, and, and this really shows John Byrne's comics IQ at its best, when John is able to weave these past events and create these homages he is not only reining back in the long-time comics reader who grew up loving these Lee and Kirby creations, like John himself did, but he also then is able to establish a level of credibility with the reader to then build upon that mythos and make it into something ultimately that is of his own, but still being true to those characters. That is an art unto itself. Not everyone can pull that off. You never felt when reading a John Byrne version of a Jack Kirby 
character or characters that this was some sort of reboot. It just felt like a natural extension of what Kirby had already built. And I don't think there's any higher praise that can be bestowed upon John Byrne other than to recognize his talent, that art, in being able to pull that off. That is not easy. And, you know, when you read the trades of the time, and a lot of this was vitriol that was spun up by a lot of Burns peers. A lot of it was sour grapes. John was getting an awful lot of attention at the time, as well as George Perez. Those two were the the hot artists working in comics. Matter of fact, they had bidding wars for each other's talents amongst both Marvel and DC. You know, who would blink first? Who could be hired away? And Jim Shooter, for the longest time and to his credit, kept John Byrne very happy with some very good contracts. George Perez chose the greener pasture that he perceived to be over at DC and was first to move over there. But where I'm going with this is the following. Important in all of this is to recognize that John Byrne generationally is the next generation after Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby's existence throughout comic book history, going back to the golden age, was a way different life set of circumstances and opportunities than what was ultimately afforded to John Byrne and through Jack's toils, struggles, and fight for creator rights, John Byrne was given a firmer platform or shoulders to stand on to wage his own battles throughout his career. And from that standpoint, these two gentlemen were an incredible one-two punch to the industry, and we are all the better and richer for what they created. And it really is a fantastic blend to see the evolution of those Kirby-created characters in comics and what Byrne did with them. I don't think there's been a more prolific one-two punch of someone being able to execute on iconic characters the way John Byrne did. And I think putting a, a final a final note on this Kirby Colonel, their artist, writer, artist, creator, DC, he's had the opportunity to do them all. And, you know, great and small, even OMAC, you know, the little known work of OMAC, John Byrne did a wonderful black and white four-issue series at DC, which... Again, he took the work that Jack did and continued it. Wonderful stuff. Yes, and I had a blast reading that four-issue limited series. And it's brilliant. It absolutely is brilliant. He, he mined Buddy's mythos and then made it so relevant to that storyline. It was just great. Absolutely fantastic. So, JJ, let's head into a little creative chatter about our writer and artist, John Byrne. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. John Byrne was born in Walsall, England in 1950. His family emigrated to Canada in 58, where, <laughs> they describe this as wanderlust, that's pretty amusing, caused him to move around so much 
that John attended nine schools in 11 years. Needless to say, comic books became his friend. And he completed two and a half years of a four-year course in fine arts before he and his instructors came to the mutual conclusion that there was little that they could offer to someone who wanted to be a quote-unquote cartoonist. So Byrne pursued his profession in 1975 when he gained a full-time employment in the comics field, starting with Willie and the Chopper Bunch for Charlton Comics. I love that. He eventually moved to Marvel and DC, where he worked on virtually every character owned by either company. And that's not an understatement. He, and at that, they were the iconic ones. Uh, most notably, Fantastic Four and Superman. So there you go. The first family of Marvel and the prime mover over at DC. Then John Byrne took on X-Men with Chris Claremont. And we could go into several podcasts just on that run alone. But finally, in 1990, he decided to venture into unprecedented waters with creator-owned works, launching Next Men in 1991. Following that success, he brought out Danger Unlimited, which we're reviewing, followed by Babe, which were both published by Dark Horse in 1994. And then he would begin to ping-pong back and forth between DC doing Wonder Woman and then drawing Marvel's titles X-Men Hidden Years, Spider-Woman. So that is how much of his career has unfolded since the mid-90s and onward. So quite the career here for Mr. Byrne. And he definitely pursued his interests and followed his muse. Again, prolific works for both Marvel and DC before venturing out on his own. It should be noted that not only was it those IPs that he lended his talent to, but Star Wars, Star Trek. He has he has done works for other IPs, and he continues to create his own content in a wide variety of styles and formats. Uh, he's even had web comics, which have turned into which he's collected and turned into collected trades. Ever the prolific creator, indeed, JJ and. For the majority of John's career, he has been a contracted talent, Vice actually being an employee of the big two. So he was betting on himself very early on in his career. And the moment that he could get into more contracted work for series, jumped at the chance. So, JJ, we brought up his independent streak and era. So what I'd like to do is head over to a little comics archaeology and see what gems you have brought for us today as it relates to John Byrne, the Independent. Yes, sir. I say there, good man. What shoes have you found there? Comics Archaeology. All right, JJ, here we are. We are down in the tombs in the crypt. We're uh, unearthing the independent streak that is John Byrne. So what have you brought for us? Well, I think it's important to note that the title, Danger Unlimited, as well as Babe, which is part of this trade that we're looking at, were some of the early works that were published under the Dark Horse imprint called Legend. And Legend arose as a direct reaction to Image. You've done some wonderful work covering the history of Image, the artists of Image, and that time uh, where they moved to creator-owned works. And the Legend imprint 
was meant to reflect that. Although initially it was supposed to address some of the things that Image had a challenge with, such as delivering. But really, it kind of fell prey to the same the same hazards. There was a quote that was, well, the way John calls it in the intro is the great experiment. Legend was the great experiment. You're supposed to have a piece of it that was the shared universe where John Byrne's next men and other characters would populate the same world as Hellboy and Monkey Man and O'Brien. But other works would be completely independent. And unfortunately, because some creators had difficulty delivering on what they promised, the writer Joe Duffy summed it up quite nicely by saying, it didn't take long for legend to become myth. (laughs) So the great experiment failed, but John has continued to produce independently. And I think he makes a point early in this debate about creator-owned rights that I think we should just kind of bring up and highlight briefly. So we're going back here actually before Image took off, so the mid-80s. And in comic scene number two, John wrote an an essay in which he talked about creator-owned works. And the point that he makes while calling himself a company man, he's very happy with doing the contracted work that is part and parcel of his job. Um, What he talks about, though, is he's never heard anybody talk about creator wrongs, for lack of a better description. The one thing that nobody seemed to bring out is if a comic book didn't do as well as it was supposed to, it ends up losing money. And in this essay, he talks about a particular book that was supposed to be doing very well, and it was the work that he did with Stan Lee for Silver Surfer. And he was saying, well, instead of getting my usual rate, can I get you know some percentage of the, the sales? And because of the structure at Marvel, Jim Shooter couldn't do that, but was able to say, you know, I can get you a bonus if things go well. And John was happy with that. Well, it turns out that the sales weren't quite as good so he got his normal rate, but if he had been part of that engagement where he would have taken part of the loss for it, he wouldn't have even gotten his regular rate. So there's a certain risk factor that never seems to be brought up when it comes to the creator rights discussions, right? Who is it that foots the bill if some things just don't become popular? And that is the thing that the larger entities do to protect the artists. They're able to provide a guaranteed rate because whether the book sells or not, they still get their guaranteed rate. Obviously, if things do well, there's new incentives now, there's new benefits, and the situation, as you brought up earlier, is much better for artists and creators today working in these large corporations than it was in Jack's day. So, Danger Unlimited is exactly one of those casualties of, here was a great idea, that was put out, but because of some negative publicity early on, the direct sales market stopped 
ordering the issues. Sales between issue one and issue two of Danger Unlimited were cut in half. Between issue two and issue three were cut even more to the point by the time they got to issue four, nobody was ordering it. So somebody who managed to get issue one might not be able to get the rest of the issues. And the way he says it, the direct sales market for comics actually killed Danger Unlimited. So It's the side that we don't often hear about, is that negative side. When you're a creator and you own the work, you're putting yourself out there. Obviously, you can get negative feedback, but there's that financial element that you don't get when you're talking about a larger entity. That is so very true. And there was no greater illustration of that for me than when I was looking at those early sales figures for image because the the image folks were really candid about letting you know what was going on there. Now, mind you, they were very proud of that because they had come over with such great acclaim. There was the mass exodus from Marvel. Here goes the creative brain drain. And wow, look at what these young folks are doing over here. Young folks being a relative term. The youngest being Rob Liefeld and the oldest actually haven't been Jim Valentino. But where I'm going with this is the following. The most prolific in the early portion of this, and this is meaning having multiple titles and churning out books, were coming out of the Wildstorm imprint, which was Jim Lee, and then also coming out of the Extreme imprint within Image, which was Liefeld. And because they had so many titles and were churning out, they were disproportionately underwriting the expenses of Image Comics. So what was supposed to have been a sharing agreement amongst the ownership there for promotion, publishing, and just supporting the office staff, basically Jim and and Rob were footing the majority of that bill. So, So there's an economic reality for you right there. When you're having to underwrite staff and you know you you need the people there in order for you to sell the books exactly so burn hits this one on the head where he talks about it as either it's an art form being run as a business or a business trying to run an art form and the business element is the piece that really gets overlooked for a long time marvel was not making very much money. And in fact, Marvel had to file for bankruptcy. So there were some very harsh business realities. The implosion in the comics market based on the over-speculation of variant covers and all these books that were getting produced, and suddenly it all came crashing down. And it's that business side that people want the comics, they want to appreciate the comics, but may not understand all of the moving pieces that go into it. And again, the corporations had found a way to minimize their risk so they could pay piecemeal and they would have one person draw it, one person ink it, another person letter it, a third person, fourth person color it, and then finally send it to the printers. And that assembly line process was the mechanism by which they could bring these stories to life. And it was dependable and it was things that they could repeat time and time again so that when something was late, it was an anomaly and it didn't happen very often. But when you have folks that are first and foremost creators and secondly business people, that's when you run into the dangers of things not 
working as well as they had hoped. JJ, excellent point. And it's rare that you actually find a creative who also happens to have really good, disciplined business sense. And Marvel was extremely fortunate that they had Jim Shooter because after Star Wars and that licensing agreement, which to his credit, let's give Roy Thomas credit where credit's due there, meeting with George Lucas and Charlie Lippincott, getting that deal done. When that started selling gangbusters, you had Jim Shooter being groomed to be elevated up to be editor-in-chief there over at Marvel. And once he assumed that mantle, he exhibited not only an incredible insight and empathy towards creatives because he was doling out the highest page rates in the business at the time, but he was also the most demanding as it related to meeting your deadline. And if you started to miss deadlines, he would get additional creative talent to take over your next issue and have you leapfrog to the one that was second or third down the line so you could catch up, which led to some continuity issues uh, rearing their ugly heads. I know there was a clash, actually, between John Byrne and Shooter over the whole Dark Phoenix saga and what transpired there as far as what Shooter wanted Jean Grey outcome to be. And Byrne was like, hey, this this is stupid. This doesn't make story sense to me. But it made business sense to Shooter. There was creative differences and the rest is history. And you're, you're going to get that when when you have creatives there. But I think the, the point to hammer home here is the one that you brought up. And that is there in order to keep the lights on, there has to be a compromise struck between the creatives and the business in order for it to function. Yes. Well, it feels like we've been tap dancing around this issue for a little bit. I think we should dive into the story and the art and really get into what we experienced. I agree. So let's head over to our literary aisle to review our story of Danger Unlimited, review the art, and look at the potential, perhaps, of what could have been. And was this a series interrupted? Orlando. There's our literary aisle. All right, JJ, here we are on our literary aisle. This story of Danger Unlimited, what were your general impressions when you were rereading this book? I believe you had read it previously. This was my first go of it. Where did this take you back? Did it did it take you back to a certain point in time for you? And what what were your impressions now a couple years later reading the story? Well, first and foremost was the memory of this being inspired or influenced by the Fantastic Four. And Byrne as much as says that in the opening of the trade here, the collected trade. Nobody else was doing the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four, as they were being published, were moving away from the characters he knew. And he had a, a real love for maybe a simpler, more wholesome approach to the characters. Uh, this this was the 90s. This was the era of the ultra-dark characters and death-dealing vigilantes and so forth. So he started from that kernel of influence 
from the Fantastic Four, but admits that he very quickly moved away from it. And I think the reason he did that was he he was playing with this concept of there being two timelines. There was the original timeline, which mimicked the the flavor and the adventure genre approach to the Fantastic Four, where it's very family-oriented, meaning that the main character and the two kids and the assistant, you know, it had... (laughs) It had a Johnny Quest feel to it, right? There was a certain wholesomeness to this. And then the future, and the future that one of the characters wakes up in is is dark, it's grim, it's gritty, it's it's a world that's been overrun by an, an alien race, and the humans are simply existing at the will of these aliens. So there's a, there's a dichotomy here between the past and the present as the story presents itself. So you can see very clearly the division between here's more like the Fantastic Four in the past and in the future it was far different from it but you know still very all ages oriented yeah it's interesting that you mentioned the all ages oriented because when i first took in this artwork i was taken aback I, i i truly was this was a new style for john Byrne to engage in and it really hearkened for me, to the Jack Kirby run of Challengers of the Unknown, and feels that way in some instances. But the art style in here is something that was indicative of the times. I felt that this book, though published by Dark Horse, could have been a valiant book. There were tones in here that reminded me of Bloodshot in some instances. Now, mind you, not as graphic and gritty, but but just the tone. So you get the full flavor of that early 90s to mid-90s darkness, but then the contrast of how the dialogue is presented to us and the actions of the characters harken back to a simpler time. And it was a quite the contrast, but it somehow worked. And I actually found it rather refreshing. Absolutely. And when you look at all of the work of this era from Byrne, including the next men, there is definitely that feel for it. And I think there is a internal reaction in comics to the direction that comics were going and i'm just going to bring up and mention 1963 by alan moore now this is a title that was released by image and it was a pastiche of the marvel comics of 1963 so there was this looking back with nostalgia at the origins of this uh, of comics so i think the way john balanced it between the flashbacks and the modern time helped soften that edge a little bit where the flashbacks seemed more wholesome the current time was more adventure action thriller where oh no we've got to escape and now we're on the run and now we're fugitives and what are we going to do next and it, it, it had that kind of tension 
ratcheted up to 11. So, yeah, I think I think he married his art style to match that feeling. The panels are darker. It's it's never explained, but the fact that there is a no blue sky, it's always a dark sky, could be something as a result of the alien occupation. Everything was very techno, very, you know, hard edges, clean lines, spark, just very, very devoid of any organics and, and life and, and energy. And then you look at these panels with the flashbacks and it's, everything's warm, everything's, you know, there's a lot of organics, you know, you're, you're venturing into the Amazon, deep into the Amazon in one portion of it. So just that juxtaposition i mean he was really again taking these concepts that you know helped establish titles like the fantastic four or challengers of the unknown and bring it into this what what was the current current aesthetic because you know ultimately he wanted to tell a story that he enjoyed but that he hoped other people would enjoy too yes and he does an effective blend here because he does tap into already established tropes. When you had cosmic rays and Fantastic Four providing them all with their powers, here you've got a substance called the gunk. So as opposed to challenges of the unknown who are just normal humans doing other humanly things and feats going and stretching and, and really maximizing their potential and capabilities, we are bestowing here through the narrative certain superpowers to this group, very much like the Fantastic Four. But that's where the simil similarities end and the divergence begins because <laughs> how, how these powers manifest themselves and then the managing of that new normal for all the characters is absolutely fascinating to me. Oh, wow. He, with the Next Men series for Dark Horse, he really started looking at how does the power, superpower, affect the person? And is there a physical ramification of it? So you were seeing that carried through as a theme in a lot of his works and what you see in danger unlimited is a subtle constant mutation of the characters over time and you only get this when you look at the series as a whole and you see the way that doc danger is depicted early on versus the way he is at literally the last moment of his supposed existence were two radically different physically looking individuals. And so he really is playing with that idea of how does this affect who they are and how they interact with others? And is it a manifestation of some inner ability with Doc Danger getting an increased intellect. You know, he was already gifted as a scientist, and now that was amplified. Right. And the other one that I find absolutely fascinating is that you have a female character here that ends up turning into the more monstrous character, like the thing, like Ben Grimm's thing. So I, I liked that juxtaposition particularly as it related to cultural and societal norms of the day, 
making the assumption that uh, beauty and physical appearance would end up being even more of a female impacting issue, and I'm talking stereotypically here, and the fact that Byrne chooses to put that one on its ear and go hard at analyzing that through that character is just brilliant. I I thought it was great. Let's be careful here because he doesn't go all the way on it. When we first encounter this character, we see the monstrosity, but very quickly she's able to return to her human form, and then she's able to master the transformation between the two. And John Byrne has a history of drawing very attractive females, but then also very powerful females. And this really started with the She-Hulk within the Fantastic Four, and then moved into She-Hulk's own series, where he took a little more camp with it you know made it a little more fun and i think he tried to mimic that approach when he went with babe although not quite breaking the fourth wall as much so i think he is he's trying to be more what's the word here politically correct he's trying to make sure that all all people are being represented here in the future and and their capabilities and so forth so i think he does a pretty good job obviously this is a very small and very short story that we have to work with so there's not a lot of detail but i think this comes to your last point is is this a series interrupted and it most definitely is to the best of my knowledge danger unlimited only shows up in one panel at the end of babe 2 and that's it i don't think we ever see them Again, although the villain, the villain, and I'm going to butcher the name of the villain here. So the villain, Golgotha, who is part cyber, part, I don't know, strongman, which is a, a skull floating in a jar, clearly a, as he said in the, to quote here, Hitler's most feared and hated weapon of vengeance, that character makes a comeback in Triple Helix, which is a the newest of probably John's works for IDW, I believe, where just by looks, and I haven't read this one, but just by looks has has a a feel of it that is reminiscent of the original X-Men. So he's reusing some of the characters. Obviously, there's great potential in all of these characters. And if there's an audience for it, great. And I think that's one of the, the benefits of this collected trade is it makes it easy for folks to be exposed to it and to say, hey, huh, what about this? And John is one of the most, well, I was well, I was going to say the word approachable. <laughs> his, his fans are called burn victims for a reason. <laughs> but if if you go to Burn's website, Burn Robotics, it, there are forums and Burn is a frequent frequent poster in these forums. So being able to interact with him is is very easy. But who knows, you know, if there's enough interest with this and i'm sure that's why the series was packaged more than once i think this is the second time it had been collected after the series was originally released there's always the possibility that he could be bringing back these characters 
again. And that would be welcome news, frankly, because I could not get enough of this Phoenix agenda, which was essentially just a four-parter in a story arc. And what I mean by that is the characters involved. I I want more story arcs. I want them going on more adventures. I want more detail. I want more insights as to how these characters are thinking and what they're feeling. John Byrne made me care about these characters. Well, and there's so many unanswered questions because on the cover of the version that we're reading, we have these two characters, kind of a fire and ice character flying by, and they appear in the one page, they appear in the one page panel at the back of Babe 2. And you're like, well, who are these? And if you look at them, they could be the Doc Danger's kids, but when we see them in the flashbacks, they have two totally different powers. Because you've got one thermal who's got both sides of the powers, super hot and super cold, right? And then the the daughter has the ability to do illusions and, and mastering, making people believe what they are seeing. So it's really like, wait, who are these? Did their powers mutate again? And the character that we saw in, oh, the, the person in the future who mutates into this gargantuan monstrosity is also pictured here in the finale of Babe. But wait a minute, it definitely looks as if this is a male. So is this a further mutation of the hunky assistant called the hunk? <laughs> So, you know, really, it, it, it just raises so many questions for me. And I'm like, oh, I got to know. I got to know. And he, you know, he hasn't done anything more with these characters. So, you know what? This would be a great springboard for a role-playing game. Lord knows there's enough superhero role-playing games out there. But you could say, okay, let's start with the flashback sequences and... We're going to put it in modern day, and it's what are they now, right? And you could you could absolutely use this as a as a background and springboard for a superhero role playing game. You would have so much stuff that you could really play upon. Yeah, it's a massive sandbox from that standpoint because again, it, it is a a series uh, not fully realized, but but so rich in its launch. And when I'm looking at the visuals here. JJ, you brought up a great point in the sky is always dark. There's lots of blue that's used throughout this book. And vibrant colors are truly used as accent pieces in here and are normally seen in high action sections of the book. Or in the instance where they're out in the jungle, view it's giving you some contrast because there's some interesting flashbacks that happened throughout the book. And I found myself catching and saying, okay, something just changed here. What just changed here? Oh, this is a flashback. Oh, okay. And now we're, we're going back from the flashback. So from the, the visual cues on the flashbacks were, I won't say confusing for me, but they were challenging at times. But, but other than that, I understood where they were trying to go with color. And nowhere in this book is the detail ever compromised by either the inks being too heavy or the color washing out. 
any of Burns' exquisite detail, whether that be facial features or just background scenes. Those cityscapes are amazing. Yet, yet, because they're left in either grays or black and whites or lighter colors, you could easily gloss over them if you're whipping through the panels and looking at the story being very intrigued and wanting to know, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? So I found myself after finishing this four-parter arc, going back and revisiting panels and discovering things that I had missed in my previous read of it and just being absolutely captivated by the world that John Byrne had created here. Yes, and let's make note here that at the time that the series was published, John Byrne was a 20-year veteran of the comics industry. He had produced so many pages, and his pacing was excellent. There was uh, a minimum of explication. Everything was delivered through very imaginative scenes. He knows how to use point of view in the panel. He knows how to size the panels. He knows how to repeat patterns and set up expectations, pacing as it's delivered on a page-by-page basis. We're talking a practiced veteran of this art form. Indeed, and not only a practiced veteran of this art form, but at the same time, an artist and stylist with incredible taste who is at this point unafraid to take some chances here on his brand being portrayed in a different light. Because it would have been real easy for him to take the stylings that he had developed over on X-Men or take the stylings that he had done with Superman and just go and do an independent work in those similar stylings because, after all, that's who his followers were used to viewing. Yes, this is definitely John Byrne. There's no doubt about it. But I I was really taken aback, Byrne being unafraid to change up his visual stylings. JJ, I wanted to pose this question to you. Do you feel that this was a natural evolution of John Byrne's style? Or do you feel he crafted this to suit the subject material? I think he is savvy enough to reinforce the themes with his artwork. So I think it's a little of column A and a little of column B. Again, he's at this point 20 years in the industry, and there's probably very little that he hasn't seen. But he understands the needs of the story and uses all of his skills to support and emphasize and reinforce whatever it is he's trying to convey, whether it be action, whether it can be tension, the difference between the nostalgic look of the past with the dark and gritty future, he's going to do what he needs to do to support that in the story. And you you can just, you can see that by just flipping over a few pages into the, the, either the Babe four issue or the, the two-parter. And even in those, even though it's the same subject, those two stories have very different feels to them because of where they take place. So I think absolutely it is both an evolution and a 
intentional approach to the art. AJ, did you enjoy the addition of the unfinished panels to this collection in particular? There were a couple of panels here that were added in that hadn't been fully inked, colored, incorporated into the original material. Did you feel that that added additional value? Did you get anything out of looking at Burns' panel progression by the addition of these other panels? Hold on a second. Are you talking about like what's going on on page 11? I am looking at not only what's going on at page 11, but what also is going on in page 43. So I flip over there in my physical copy, which is typically a rarity for me. I might have misinterpreted what he was even trying to do. So that would be even better <laughs> to, to bring up here. So in those, in those two examples, what you've got is... The way Burn, the, the way I read it, is the way Burn is trying to relay intense light. So as they, so in page eleven, they're like, "Hey, there's these strange readings in this in this canister. What should we do? Well, we can we can cut it open, and so you're getting everything basically white out because they're using some sort of laser to try to open up the trying to open up the container." And then uh, as it, it comes out, the character that we're talking about there, so the character that, ex that basically comes out of the canister there, Thermal, Burn renders him as black and white. And th the white is meant to be the intensity of the light that's coming from him. And I think he uses that again later when the aliens or maybe the mechanisms in the alien ship that Doc Danger is in capture them. So it's a little bit of a shortcut that, you know, Burns been razzed about before. There was an Alpha Flight issue where it was Sasquatch and Snowbird in a snowstorm, where there was basically a bunch of blank panels and, and word balloons where... <laughs> I'm laughing because I read that. It was, oh my gosh, it was hilarious. Yeah, but I think here, you know, there he he used it jokingly. Here he's using it to portray the, he's using it to portray the intensity of the light that, you know, it washes out everything else. Okay, thank you for the clarification because uh, it, it confused me. I understood that they had lasers in there. I understood that, yeah, you could have light being emitted, but it really took it to an extreme level as far as the, uh, not, not only the, the, the light washing out the detail. So I was like, oh, wait a second. It was, were these panels that either for editorial purposes were chosen not to be included, but now we're including them in to lengthen out the, the story or provide some sort of additional insight. But I'm glad you clarified that for me as far as that actually being something that John would do in, in previous works. So from that standpoint, yeah, it's very effective. But for the uninitiated, it, it might be a little confusing. Right. So here you are, you're reading along and you've got all the regular colors and tones and shades. And then all of a sudden you, you drop into black and white. And the, the transition happens between the last panel on one page and the next panel on the first, the first panel on the following page. So it is, it is quite abrupt, but it's just as abrupt when 
it switches back. So yeah, I could see where I could see where that would happen. But again, this is him using all of his experience to say the absence of color is an indicator. And in this particular case, looking at the way he uses it for the thermal character, it is the intensity of the light. Just like when Johnny Storm would go supernova, you know, they would they would not color him or they would, you know, the shades of color got lighter and lighter until it was, you know, like white hot at the center. And I think that's what he was what he was hearkening to, but he was carrying it to the nth degree in that the light was so intense it was washing out all color in the entire area. And now that makes all the sense in the world after you've just explained that. So thank you. That was extre- extremely helpful and and it is indeed extremely effective when you then take in both sides of that absence of color and and intensity to bring your attention into that that light. So what more is to be said of this? I'm just going to call it a limited run series because that's effectively what this piece of art has been turned into for better or for worse. Right. Because of the cancellation, there was no further there was no further work. This the the writing was on the wall. The the direct comic sales distribution network was saying, Nope, we don't want this, and there you have it. So the the book can be easily obtained through retailers like Amazon. Your local bookstore will carry it. Your local comic book store should hopefully be able to get it for you. And it's a great way of trying out trying out these stories and seeing give it a read and do you see more of the fantastic four or challengers of the unknown than we did you know how closely did he how closely did he stay to those those archetypes and how far did he move away granted we don't have a lot especially for hunk there's really not much that you can do but in the uh, of the two timelines there's much more depth and development in the future timeline and again it's it's one of those boy it would be really fun to see where we go from here well said you summed it up beautifully i wholeheartedly endorse that encapsulation because for me my gut reaction after finishing this was like that's it <laughs> where's where's more i want more what's going on here and i should have read the fine print when purchasing this because this was a purchase off of comiXology an electronic version that i read it on an ipad and had i read the fine print i would have seen that oh a little over half of this was the babe run now related but it further gotten my juices flowing here to say wow you know what john Byrne, thank you for creating Danger Unlimited because what you did with Fantastic Four took those characters to a whole other level. And what you're doing here with Danger Unlimited is really keying off of those themes of family within Fantastic Four that you would have, the comparing and contrasting and dynamic tension between characters, the ways in which these characters are having to wrestle with their abilities or in some instances are able to control them better than what had been realized in Fantastic Four. However you want to look at it, the evolution of these different kind of characters, and as you also brought up too, a more diverse family dynamic too, both you know ethnically, racially, and gender, I thought was cool for the times. I think you'd have something even more advanced now, uh, being in a whole new century. But for the 90s, this was, this was pretty forward thinking in many instances. But 
at the same time, as you were quick to bring out, stylistically, still within the John Byrne comfort zone and wheelhouse, particularly as it related to portrayal of gender on the pages. Well, and it certainly whet my appetite for more of his work of that era and after. Having realized how much he has produced since Danger Unlimited, it's it's really, there's a lot a lot to pick from. Many of these stories have been collected in the trades. They're available through IDW or through Dark Horse. They're available in trade paperback form. It should be hopefully easy for folks to get and enjoy and explore all of John Burns' works. And with that, kids, we would love to hear from you once you have read Danger Unlimited. Please leave us a message via the Anchor app or send us an email at kirbyskidspodcast at gmail.com. JJ, thank you for coming in, sharing your insights, and shedding some light on this incredible work by John Byrne. It was my pleasure and perfectly timed. I've got to go change my bandages now. We're Kirby's Kids. Hey, shout to the